You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and it's another Edinburgh Live special from the Gilded Balloon. And this is another blinder, though I do say so myself. Uh, We've got someone who has a foot in both of two usually opposing camps. Uh, That's the experimental theatrical storytelling thing, as well as the undeniable roof-raising club comedy thing. It can only be Phil Nickel. Thanks a lot for coming, Phil. Yeah, have a seat. Oh, You're, yeah, thank um, you. You've for uh, having me. You've brought some natural coconut water with you. I did bring some. This is uh, I keep revitalized. I'm not selling it, but I keep revitalized <laughs> with Vita Coco. <laughs> I drink I drink two of these a day, and it's like drinking water. It's good for you. Is it when, yeah. when you say it's like drinking water, is it better than water? It's better than water. It's got all the electrolytes in it. Uh, it's got lots of sodium. The coconut uh, skin works as a natural filter for rainwater, and the, and the coconut uh, itself, the seed feeds off the water inside it, which is what the coconut water is, and um, it's be- slightly better for you than water itself. Incredible. We're looking, we're looking at potential sponsorship here. That's as good as in as any other. Um, listen, you and I, well, I saw your show uh, a couple of uh, afternoons ago. And it's, it's an afternoon show, isn't it? It is. It's a 2.30 in the afternoon show. And that's a, presumably that's a, a very deliberate choice on your part. It was actually d- accidental. I was supposed to be doing a show, a play called The Shawshank Redemption um, for, for, for Tommy Shepard and uh, the Assembly Rooms. Uh, and then uh, he called me a week later and said, look, I have a 2.30 room. If you're up doing the festival anyway, you could do a 2.30 show as well and I was like well I'd, it was March uh, someone had dropped out and I was like I, I don't think I want to spend the summer writing trying to rush to write a whole hour of comedy so like an idiot I said I'll do a theatre show instead and I uh, so I just named a title I had an, a basic idea of what I was going to talk about it and it's ended up being a theatre thinking that theatre is easier to write than comedy it's not <laughs> um, so I'm doing that but then I ended up being cast in uh, a play that went to the Manchester International Festival in July which meant that I couldn't make the rehearsal for the Shawshank Redemption but I do have August off, so I'm only doing the one show, the 2.30 show that I didn't want to do in the first place. It's a mess. <laughs> but the show itself, so that's interesting. So you, the, the show that I saw, you you refer to as a theatre show rather than a stand-up show. Well, yes, it's, it's called The Weary Land. Well, it's, I think it's a comic monologue, because people forget that in theatre you can have comical things as 
well. Uh, but because we have this comedy theater definition, but people think by definition that you go into theater, things have to be serious and really earnest, and comedy things are all light and surreal and whimsical, and it's not necessarily the case. And I, th I think one of the main one of the issues they're having with the festival is if you, is to know where to put your show. You could put your show in like the you know people that used to be there used to be no cabaret section. They used to put their show in the comedy section. People go along and go, well, it's not very funny. You know, a yeah. guy dancing around dressed as a pineapple. Well, it's not supposed to be funny, is it? <laughs> and, in your, and you're speaking as someone who, you, this is, you were saying this is your 15th Edinburgh Festival. And this is, no, it's my 21st Edinburgh Festival. Okay. It's my 15th solo show. Okay. Yeah. I was looking at your, your website earlier on and the list. It's quite interesting. You've put a little, little paragraph explaining what's happened with all of those 15 shows right. and what they were and where they come from. Yeah. And what strikes me is that you have enormous breadth and range as a comedian. You've come up here with shows that are theatre pieces, with shows that are straight st stand-up or simple stand-up, as you call it. You have songs. You can you do poetry. Yeah. You seem to have just an enormous range. Yeah. And um, I'm just interested in... Why I've not you been heard of? <laughs> <laughs> Why no one knows who I am? I don't well, know. Do you, do you feel that no one knows who you are? I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm really average at all of it. <laughs> just sort of average at a whole bunch of things. I don't know if there's enough people in this room right now, and this will be different to the listenership of the podcast, <laughs> who are just aware of how successful you are at making rooms full of people cry laughing. Oh, well, thank you. So, it, it, so your kind of humility there of going, maybe I'm average. I felt there were slightly people going, oh, is, uh, oh, is he average? <laughs> but he's, uh, he's very well, much not. I mean, you're... Well, yeah, I mean, that's all. That's all. It's, you know, it's uh, subjective, isn't it? One, someone might find me really funny and someone else might think that you're the most horrible person in the world. It's just that's the beauty of comedy. Sure. If that's beautiful. If, you know. You could, you, what I'm saying is that you don't know. With, with, if it's something like, um, there, there are very few things where right across the board, everyone loves it. It's very rare, like The Simpsons or, or things, or Family Guy, it's very rare. You know, something that's that, that's almost, and there, there, you probably would find people out there that don't like those things, but they wouldn't even mention it in public because they'd feel like most people would turn and go, what are you talking about? It's my favorite show. And everyone would go, yeah, don't you remember the episode? Really? And uh, I'm not one of those, I'm one of the ones where people go, who? Is there, is it, does, that, does that affect you? Do you have an emotional reaction to that? Did you, uh, do you want to be more known than you are? Well, no, I think I... Well, to be honest, I think I turned a corner on that. I, I, was, I was in a... I used to be part of a, a comedy act called Corky and the Juice Pigs. It was a trio. And we were quite successful. We, we, we were from Toronto. And we spent a lot of time in uh, Hollywood in, near the end of our career. And uh, uh, we were on development deals with D the Disney company. We auditioned for Steven Spielberg for a, a Spielberg film. So, you know, it's pretty successful. I think um, uh, nothing came of it. Mm -hmm. And we didn't get the part in the film. And uh, we were on a program called Mad TV. TV for a whole season doing musical comedy stuff. So, you know, that's quite successful. And then uh, when I started doing stand-up, when that all fell apart, I started had to go back to doing open spots and stand-up. I realized it's my second comedy career. Um, there's a lot of things that go, trappings that go with that, that were turning me into a, quite a horrible uh, person. Uh, and a bit of an idiot, really. Slick back hair, aviator sunglasses, you know, smoking cigars, just being a, a turd, basically. And, <laughs> and, and I believe, believing the hype. And, I, and so this, this, this time around, I've kind of realized, I've, you know, I have a really good life. I have a great life. I get to perform all over the world. I get to do, write and do these shows in Edinburgh. And uh, I don't have to worry about getting b irritated and bothered by someone come up to me in a restaurant. Um, I was standing with a famous comic a well-known comic on the streets uh, just yesterday and the number of people that wanted their photo takes like we couldn't get a conversation we couldn't have a conversation he had finally had to put his sunglasses and a hat on and move um just to get away from everyone i, I that would probably really crush me i think that would be really it'd be, it wouldn't be worth the money to to be that mm -hmm. to be that 
to be known that way. But when you started out doing open spots as a comedian, were you chasing the idea of the success that you'd had with uh, the Juice Pigs? I had. I, th I think I had to. I wanted to prove to myself that I could, that it wasn't just the the group uh, that broke up through the strain of uh, finance and egos, and I wanted to prove to myself that it. What I wasn't just imagining that I was a. a um, a strong part of the, the you know, the stronger than the sum of its parts. That I wanted to prove myself that I was actually not just some kind of ligger who'd accidentally got, you know, joined in with some guys who were really good. I had to prove to myself that I actually was part of a thing that was really good. So I did, I've done that. I feel quite comfortable with That's, that. It's interesting. I got the sense from, from seeing your show last Sunday that you, it's interesting, you do seem comfortable. You seem like you're in control now of your your work and your future in a way that maybe when when I've seen you on stage in clubs and you've your persona is incredibly hyperactive and yeah. manic I remember we did a gig together years ago on the the boat show at the Tattersall Castle in London and um and you were doing your kind of room smashing set with a t-shirt over your head and the guitar and the song at the end and, uh, and I remember you saying something I don't want to uh, misquote you but I think you said something like this is my this is my club set yeah. When I go to Edinburgh, I do interesting stuff. This is me cranking out yeah. the the gear that that gets the gets the encores yeah. and the, the big rounds of applause. Yeah, that's, been, that's become more actually more of a. Uh, I mean, it's it's an ongoing argument I have with my uh, with uh, agents and and PRs and it's and friends. You do can you can do comedy in in, in clubs where there'd be like a room like this would be like a hundred to two hundred people in it who who don't come there because there's anyone special on just because it's a comedy club and the British comedy scene is by far in a way the best comedy scene it's, and unfortunately it's slowly being strangled to death but that's a whole other story mm -hmm. because you could just show up and you know you know you're going to get at least one possibly two maybe four great comics uh, for your money and have and have a good night and British audiences already show up with a sense of humor and they're already enjoying themselves generally so they show up with it doesn't matter whether the how good the comedians are so even new act nights can do quite well for numbers and uh, I realized quite quickly that you could I could actually just do the same club set wherever I went and it's not actually gonna doesn't turn me into a that's not what turns you into a successful comedian uh, to the next level in in this country anymore you have to have a television uh, mm. profile and you have to they want they need you on mock the week you need to have this sort of other thing going on and that's what makes you into a a touring uh, club co uh, a touring comic uh, not a club comic so i i kind of have this idea of going no, I'm not that concerned about turn, my, my turn material turnover for doing club comedy because what I want the audience that comes there to see is the, my best material because that's really what they deserve. Not, sure. they, don't, they don't deserve to see a guy experimenting. Where when I come to Edinburgh, it's a different, uh, different agreement. You've come to watch shows and see some, you're here because you love the arts and you want to see some, you'd, you'd rather see someone experiment and pull it off and do really well. That's when you go, wow, that was amazing. I saw Slapdash Galaxy and this guy's experimented with shadow puppets and it's one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. Or, or you know, I mean, in comedy terms, Daniel Kitson. Or, but, if you, but if you want to go and see like, just someone that does really good. Uh, you want to, then you go and see the big name acts that are on here, spend 20 quid, and you're gonna go and sit and watch them do an hour of the show they did on tour for nine months, and it's gonna be word perfect and hilarious, but it's not going to be edifying to your artistic soul. Do you, do you think that you're quite, I mean, that's, that's quite a manifesto, or quite, that's a, it's a, a clear and comfortable it's opinion a, for a you. Up, a bit up myself. Yeah, yeah no, that's cool. You um, told me beforehand, be, just be honest, but I, I don't, yeah. I could be wrong about it all, but I just have a, maybe, maybe it's a, a, a retrospective excuse for uh, for not being a higher not being higher profile but I'm I'm actually as you get older I think you'd be more comfortable I think you become more comfortable with uh, the, the way things work out for yourself and you do I don't think it's an excuse I think it's you just realize this is the rationale for where I am 
and what I'm doing. Do, do you think that you're quite... Um, that's, I've not heard any other comedians who, are, who occupy a similar profile to you, whereby you've, you know, you've won the big award here. And you, I think it was interesting, you said you were the George Lazenby of comedy because you, you won the, the main comedy award the, the one year it was called a particular name. Yeah, well, it yeah. was called the Perrier for, Award for years. So, you know, and everyone's, anyone that's won the Perrier has now, you know, Frank Skinner. I mean, I don't even, Lee Evans. They're all um, household names in Britain. And then I won it one year, and it was the year that Perry stopped the, uh, <laughs> Perry stopped their thing. I won it, it was the if.comedy, which the which, which was a terrible name, wasn't it? The if.com if. Eddie yeah, award. It was called the Iffy. Thanks, yeah. everybody. <laughs> and, and, and it was also Halifax Bank, which the next year went under due to the financial crisis. So uh, it made me the George Lazenby of comedy yeah. award winners. Because if I put if.comedy on my poster, people go, what the fuck? What the fuck? Uh, but I don't mind that. It's kinda, it almost suits me. It almost is like a theme in my life that I never quite get the thing. I never quite touch the brass ring. And, and I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing. It's allowed me to be, take a longer time. I'm not under, you know, it must be really hard to be someone like uh, uh, Russell Kane, okay? And, and I'm not saying him for any, I just was the first person. Just because a big comic, yeah. Someone who's comic, going off but the he, he now has to pull off that level of show all the time. And, uh, and, and, then, and that, in essence, uh, one way of doing that is to repeat yourself. And so then he starts to repeat himself. But of course, we're, as human beings, we all get bored. And after a while, people start to go, oh, God, he's doing the same thing. Or you get to know what he's doing, so you, 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 you lose an audience. And then he has to go through a period of trying to refine himself, whereas I'm constantly just doing the things that, uh, that I want to say, the things I want to say, and do the things I want to do. And, and I'm able to experiment, because I don't have to fear losing an audience, because I don't really have one. <laughs> <laughs> So. That's very. I, I appreciate each, each, each show. Each show I've done up here finds an audience, and some of them may be more successful than others. I've always there's enough people that know me that I can, I'm always going to have some people there. So, and I work at this through the stand and Tommy Shepard at the stand because of the the, the financial package that he puts together for shows up here. Mm. I never have to fear of losing money. I'm always going to go away from Edinburgh having a fairly healthy. Uh, 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 not only a financial uh, life, but also creative life. So it's kind of, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in a good place. And that's because of this, you know, winning awards and stuff like that. It's just given me that little bit of headroom that I, I think younger comics would love to have. So I am lucky. There, there seems in the way that you're talking about that now, and I, might, I, I, I know you, we gig together, I don't know you well. There seems in your voice an element of sadness. Do you feel sad? Sadness. Yeah. Do you feel uh, sad? You seem very calm. No, I. I know. I. I think I, if I sound sad, well, I don't know. I, I, I'm. I'm. I'm sad that uh, not f just not for me personally, but I'm sad that some uh, that what's ha the, It seems like there's been a a movement in comedy, and I, and I can't really quite get a since I've been here. If I've been here 15 years and been doing comedy at Edinburgh since 1990, there has been a shift away from the in the general public in the. Um, in in uh, awarding rewarding comedians who are doing ex ex exclusive work or exciting uh, inventive um, work, uh, and it and it seems like the odd for whatever reason it's kind of like an X factor mentality where the, all everyone in the audience suddenly thinks they're judges of uh, judging. You, you're not you're not just going along to enjoy yourself. You're actually sitting in judgment. Oh well, this guy's not going to be good. Well, he'll never get on mock the week. You start you start all we're all looking for the next big thing that we've lost sight of what comedy actually is supposed to do which is supposed to experiment so it's becoming a little bit that it's not as rewarding to to be uh to be an adventurous comic and it's so it's you know it's becoming less and less 
a popular notion and there's more and more people on the rise and I think I'm not saying anything that's groundbreaking there's more and more people who are getting into comedy simply to get themselves a television career that's what they think the goal is and that's for me that's not uh, uh, what the goal is anymore. It was when I was young, and I'm not denying that. I was madly in love with myself when I was in Hollywood, and I was a complete jerk off. Um, but now I think, you know, I, th I, I stopped thinking of, it used to be kind of, you, you don't, comedians won't let each other get too up themselves. You couldn't say comedy was an art, or else you'd, uh, you, you look, you someone take the, pick, the, the Mickey out of you. But I think with the with the Daniel Kitsons and the David O'Doherty's, people are starting to go. Well, it is an art form, and and it, it does have. You can take it places, and it can be original, and it can be really satisfying and edifying for an audience to see something of extreme originality. It's just I don't think there's as much of an appetite for it because it's a it's a trendy thing, and mm. that's not what you. The people sitting here at your podcast, your adventure is coming into this, and and I and I laud you for it. But it's it should be full. You know, that's just the fact to me. Um, oh, 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 it is. It is full. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I, I, lo I love a twenty-seat theater. I, yeah. uh, I have to say. This but yeah, no, I don't think I'm saying anything groundbreaking, but just as an older comic. And I, I don't think it's sad. I don't think it's sad for me, but it would be nice to see, it would be nice to see it shift back that other way. Mm. Uh, I think the free fringe is a fantastic help here at the end yeah, of the I mean it, But if the, only that notion could be taken back to, uh, you know, little towns, rugby, Peterborough. In fact, in fact, that's not fair because I found what's happening is all the lovely little gigs that are happening, all the really fun little gigs and the really supportive little gigs are actually happening outside the city's capitals, outside the city, the big cities and the city's capital. And I end up having a great time going to some little tiny gig in the middle of nowhere whereas if you go to the, the big comedy clubs it's just become like a homogenized uh, um, white noise of comedy and because there's so much of it because you see television there's a lot of t uh, people are going to watch comedy that wouldn't have gone normally because they want to go and see the type of thing they saw on television not realizing the amount of editing and the amount of stuff that goes into putting a television comic on is should have no reflection and no basis of what happens in a club so uh, my favorite comedians are like Phil Kay um, you know he does a completely different tries to do something completely different every night and uh, he at one time he was the king of comedy here in Edinburgh and you wouldn't see a better show and now I think it's uh, he if you talk to him on your show um, he all probably expresses similar I don't think it's sadness I just think it's a uh, you know um, it's just the way it is so I've just given into it mm. do you what well, I think something that you are saying that's unusual is in terms of your your club work and the fact that your club set is, is this devastating and it, it really is for anyone that hasn't seen it it's, I mean, I remember seeing it in, uh, in Meribel, say, at the Altitude Festival, yeah. where just people would be standing on the chairs going mental at the end of your show. Yeah. Um, your decision to still be... I think what I'm trying to say is that there seems normally to be two sorts of comedians. There's the comedians that play the clubs and have the same gig every year. Every, you know, they have the same set and never change it. And then there's the comedians who are constantly turning over material and coming to Edinburgh. And you're quite unusual, I think, in that you're you seem to be doing both things. Do you think it, you know, you're, you're doing the experimental interesting stuff and you've got the productive, it's almost like you're one of my friends from the street performance world who've got the moneymaker show that they go out and do and then they've got that allows them the time to do the interesting thing. And I just wonder whether any part of you feels that if you were turning over more stuff in the clubs, it would have any sort of, I mean, would that help you get on TV? Would you be interested in getting on TV? I, I'm told that that's what, I mean, I, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, it's getting, it's getting personal, I guess, to the point of this thing. That, I'm, if I'm, if I'm, it's I'm okay told, with you. I'm told by, well, if you know the, a little bit about the industry, that you've agents and managers are working behind the scenes to try and get you onto these things. And a lot of the people we see on these programs are all belong to the like two or three main agents who are really powerful. And they have the major acts and they can use those, 
that power in with and, and the connections because uh, like in any business it's who you know they have connections and power with the people that make those decisions to get those acts on and I am with uh, someone who's been a friend of mine for a long time and although she has a couple of like really really um, hot clients she's not a hugely powerful agent in the same sense that those big agencies are and so the one thing she continues to tell me that the, the, the one way she would be able to pitch me again for these television shows would be if I was to be seen as someone who was turning over a hot club set and now I don't agree that that's necessarily true and I don't think that's that I don't think that the casting agents and the people that book these shows go and see comedy sure. anymore I think they I you know I'm I'm they might come here for the television uh, thing and get taken to a show by one of those agents because they feel they're they need to um you know be be successful with that agent to in order to work in the business because sure. it's a you know, it's a mutual thing. And I'm not saying that's good or bad, that's just business. I think, I think there's a great deal of frustration in the comedy world at the moment. I've certainly noticed in the nine years since I've been doing stand-up that I, I feel like we've divided into the A stream and the B stream. Yep. And the A stream are the, are the comics who have the same appearances on the same TV shows, yep. the same you know, five, six different TV shows on all their posters. Yep. And then there's us. There's, yeah. the, there's the other people. Yeah, and, and you know, and it doesn't actually even add up, uh, and, not, and not to knock any of those people, because in that A stream, to use that mm. term, there's loads of fantastic comics. Absolutely. And, you know, people you see on QI and like Sean Locke and all those guys, they're, they're amazing. They're really good comics and have worked a long time really hard to get to that point and been through this process. And there's a lot, there's a large group of us who are very of a similar age and similar generation who are still doing the stuff that I'm doing and doing the stuff that we're doing. But if you were to replace any one of them, they are kind of replaceable because, um, on a given night, Stuart Goldsmith is as funny as any of those people you will see on television. And I can guarantee you that. Um, they That's just, going on they, my poster, by the way. Yeah. No, it's, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I think... I think I, choose, I, 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 I think anyone that's been able to make... A, anyone that's been doing comedy in this country any longer than, you know, eight years to ten years is, has, to be a, has to be a decent uh, level of co comic. You know, it's really hard. You get, they get, it's get, it's get, you get weeded out quite quickly. Uh, with the clubs, because you either can do it or you can't, and it's not—it's not as it's not, the audiences either go with you or they don't, and you're either consistent. You might have some personal problems that make it more difficult for you. You may suffer some personal issues that that stop you from gaining that access, or you might be just a very uncomfortable person that makes it difficult for you to fit in, or you might be, uh, well, I guess someone like somebody me where you kind of uh, have an aversion to it, so therefore it becomes you—you you write your own history, you write your own future, then and not get it, so. That's why there's a B stream. So this is Phil. Uh, I'm so pleased that he felt able to be so uh, so candid and speak so frankly. He was very, very open. And bless him, he did make, as you'll hear, make frequent reference to... Uh, to his his situation, to how uncomfortable he felt talking about the stuff, and obviously the worries that people have that other people might judge them based on something as revealing as an interview like this. So I, I'm really pleased. I'm really glad that he sort of stuck to it. I think we've got some tremendous stuff here. Uh, while I remember, do uh, download the or stream rather. I'm sorry, I've said download before. I think it's only I've only made it available for streaming. Um, I will. You can download the the proper version with the blurb later on. Um, but uh, there is the Tony Law interview where Tony Law is uh, in a state of advanced refreshment, um, and uh, you can stream that if you join the Facebook group for the Comedians Comedian podcast, or you go to comedianscomedian.com and have a look on the website. Find the link to my mailing list. When you join the mailing list, you'll be sent a link for that. So that one is still available, but I might take it off soonish. Haven't decided yet. Um, 
Thank you very much for all your emails. Uh, I've just got one recently from Bonnie David saying she loves the show. Uh, and then she said, and she put at the end, thank you so much in, uh, in capitals, which I liked especially because that's, uh, that's often how Pat Oswalt signs off. He just immediately snaps out of a bit and goes, thank you all so much. And that's the cue. Bang, it's over. Um, and, and funnily enough, on the subject of Patton, another email from Kristen Miller saying, please interview Patton Oswalt. That was all she put in the subject line, short and to the point. Very easy for me to get back to. And believe you me, he is in my one of my top five favourite interviewees ever. I'm a huge fan of Patton. If you don't know Patton Oswalt, I started with his album Werewolves and Lollipops and it just gets better and better from there. So give him a listen. Thanks also to, I've no idea of the pronunciation, I'm going to go with Kasia Fudakowski in Berlin for her lovely email. Uh, and thanks to Ian Page and Paul Hayes for their comments and support as well. Um, I don't read a lot of these out because mostly what people are saying is, thanks, the show's great. And I don't just want to repeat people's praise for me. That's what Twitter's for, surely. Um, but do ask me questions and I'll try and engage with those a bit more. By all means, contribute to the folder of people begging me to get Daniel Kitson on the show. Uh, as soon as I've got a thousand of those emails, I'm going to take them all to Daniel so that he can put them in the bin personally. Um, I should remember to point out as well, Nish Kumar. Now, if you like comedy that's about stuff, you're all intelligent people. Um, I'm sure most of you are, I'm sure. Um, Nish Kumar is a friend of the show. You'll remember him uh, from his brief cameo on the Josh Widdicombe episode. I'm going to try and get him on uh, soon. But either way, I just want to briefly advertise his uh, his Soho run. He's doing, I think he's doing two weeks at the Soho Theatre. Do go and see Nish Kumar. He's, obviously, he's a friend of mine. I'm going to sort of declare that interest straight away. But he's also a brilliant comedian. His last show at Edinburgh was spectacular and is genuinely about an interesting uh, thing. I don't want to give anything away about it, but it's not just a bloke telling loads of jokes, although it has that element. He's a very gifted comedian. But uh, it's also a very interesting and fascinating show. So do go and see Nish Kumar in his show, Nish Kumar is a Comedian. Now, I've had to cancel the, the, the ComCom live appearance at the Sheffield uh, Comedy Festival. I'm really sorry about that. The good news is that the Leicester one is still going ahead uh, and he's penciled in. I'm going to announce him anyway because he's a good egg. Uh, Jared Christmas is going to come on the show. Brilliant improviser, fantastic uh, comic and compare and uh, actor. Uh, Jared Christmas is going to be on uh, Leicester Festival ComCom live special on the 16th of uh, 16th of Edinburgh. I nearly said quite wrong. The 16th of February 2014. Uh, that's a Sunday and it's going to be at five o'clock. So listen out for more details about that. There might be some more London ones coming up as well. I'm sort of trying to work out what they are. I'll tell you. I'll tell you what I'm doing uh, when I know, really. Uh, this might make you happy as well. Before we get back in, um, uh, two little things. Uh, first, the uh, the the first question that get asked at the end of this show. The questions were a little bit ragtag. I've previously complimented my listenership on their um, on their intelligent questions, but um, uh, these ones, although intelligent, what someone was basically trying to bash Lee Max sitcom not going out under the guise of asking Phil Nickel a question. It was a bit weird, and normally I just sort of nibble that out in the edit, but I think it actually led somewhere interesting. So uh, we've stuck with that. It's uh, my normal system of blipping it. Is you'll see when you get there. But uh, apologies to Lee Mack if you're listening, Lee. I think me and Phil defended you satisfactorily. Um, do come on the show sometime. And finally, this I think this might uh, might make everyone happy. It might not. I managed recently to to sort of mentally square a thing with myself that's been bothering me for ages about it's something I, I'll ask people on the show over the whole of the, the Edinburgh specials. Do you consider yourself an entertainer or an artist? And I'd often wondered how I would answer that question myself. And I've worked it out. I'm a bad artist. Brilliant. I'm so pleased with that. That's, I'm sure that's after uh, Simon Munnery, I seem to remember, has got a really good joke about 
uh, comedy so close to art and that if it was close to the line of of art then it would be far away from the center of comedy but that's not that's not quite what i mean um i just mean that i suppose since i went to university i've been trying to struggle with the idea of entertaining people is it worthwhile am i just an entertainer is it is that slagging off entertainers to use the word just all of that kind of stuff it just came to me as if in a dream and i thought no do you know what i am i'm a bad artist i aspire to be an artist um which i think is good but i'm not making any claims to being a great one but i'd rather be uh, you know, a good entertainer and a bad artist than just a good entertainer. So that's where I am with that at the moment. Uh, join the Facebook group or tweet me uh, at ComComPod or email me info at comedianscomedian.com. Tell me your thoughts on being an artist or an entertainer. That's all of that. That's quite that's quite chatty. Can you tell I've been on my own all day? Um, so now let's, uh, let's get back to it uh, with the second half of this interview with the brilliant Phil Nichol. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Let's let's talk about the writing of the show. One of, of of your of your shows. By the way, are you guys interested in any of this, or where's the where's the stag do? <laughs> I got a show for you. This is it. Listen, this it, it, I'm sure these people are listening and interested in focusing. It's very unusual for a lot of comedians to spend this time talking to an audience, not getting laughs. And I think it can make you kind of uh, it can make you. <laughs> well, I was jumping. thinking of a stag, did a stag do once where I had the whole stag do, and, and it was in Scotland. It was here during the festival. There was a stag do. So I'm doing like some kind of artsy fartsy theater show somewhere, and I'm going. To do a late night gig, a club set, and which is a completely different kettle of fish. And there was a stag do, and the dad was leaning against the wall facing the audience, right? He fell asleep. So I said to the stag do, I climbed up, said, Get your cameras ready. And I pulled my trousers down, got my testicles out of my trousers, and leaned over and just started tapping him on the top to, on his forehead with my testicles till he woke up while his son and all of his mates took photos of it. So um, if you want me to do that, <laughs> I will. Well, look, even if they're not laughing sometimes, they're definitely not going to be falling asleep now, so that's good. <laughs> exactly. No but I, I, think the way into, I think the way into talking about the writing is, is this honesty. I, think, I really appreciate you being so honest about your, your feelings about I, it. I'll and be honest. I'll be, I'll be a little bit scared to talk about it because, A, I'm, I'm, not, I'm never sure of my own opinion. Uh, I, it, it fluctuates with, uh, with time. And, and I also, um, it's, I think it is, I feel uncomfortable speaking from someone who, uh, speaking as someone who isn't a, a household name or a successful comic in the sense that you guys would understand, uh, having an opinion on it. But I have done it. I have been doing this since 1987. I've got 25 years of experience, and I've never had a day job. I've only ever done comedy, mm -hmm. so I probably do, should have an opinion on it. Um, but I, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit tense expressing it because the other thing is I know people listen to your podcast and they might go oh god all you got to do is say one thing or mention one thing wrong I might already be in trouble but, you know but I, if I was to be if I wanted to be ruthless I would, and be really honest I'm, I might get in real trouble 
Sure. Well, so, there's certainly. I think some some people do feel kind of bound by that because the circuit's so small. Yeah. But I think equally, the the just specifically referring to this interview, I think the most positive reactions I get from. Uh, or, or that other that my my guests get is when is when they're honest and when you know Terry Alderton was talking about the decision to go on antidepressants and you yeah. know it's it's that stuff that you know so okay. I, I appreciate it. Okay, you were you were saying in fact. Um, do you want to talk about, you mentioned that review earlier on, or should we talk about some happiest, <laughs> let's talk no, about some happiest stuff we'll talk, first, because no, no, there's no a lot to, of good stuff no to get No point into. talking about reviewers. I mean, reviewers in Edinburgh, it's, it's just ridiculous, right? We don't have to get into it. It's the, you know, uh, if, 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 the, if the people that are, the people that are, are uh, you know, doing the, doing the work and creating the shows spend a lot of time and heartfelt effort doing it. As, as a performer, I think there should be more performers, there should be more singers, more dancers, more jokers. It doesn't, and I think the, it doesn't matter what level you're at. I think you should appreciate that someone's in front of you trying to do something. And I've seen some dire stuff as well, and it is funny, but it doesn't, I, I think to sit there and actually try and write it off and write, put your little opinion down on a piece of paper is a, an act of cowardice. So let's move on from reviewers. Okay, yeah. okay. Well, let's talk about the bravery then that, that I think you display in uh, in putting your life down on paper and yeah. putting your life out there in the yeah. stage because you are unbelievably candid in your shows you tell I mean I was watching I, I haven't seen you know I've seen some of your shows yeah. but obviously you've, you've produced an enormous amount of material I was watching something on YouTube earlier on and it was the story of you uh, snogging your your now ex-girlfriend's yeah. dad yes and that's oh, no 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 no. He snogged me. Oh sure, no, he did. That's absolutely right. There's a big difference. But there's you know there's a lot like that's a the, and I'm assuming this is true because I think it's you true, all, all of your work's true. true. Yeah. yeah, it's all true. So and there's there's you, there's kind of uh, references to drug use in yes. that sort of yes. stuff. There's an awful lot of 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 personal stuff that comes out there. Yeah. And I just wanted to ask you about the the what drives you to be constantly exposing yourself in that manner. Uh, I don't. I just think it's funnier. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I I love uh, the surrealists. I have always think of myself. I look at like people that do one liners, and I and I just admire them. I and I wish I could. In fact, that's part of the uh, Bobby Spade is this character that I mm. developed in in because I wanted to try and write that. And I spent a whole summer writing one liners. I think there's it ended up having like 52 one liners in that show and some poetry and stuff, uh, because I really admire them. And I really admire Surrealist. I think Tony Law is, is fantastic and taking it to another level. Mm. Uh, Paul Foote, you know, it's, it, I wish I could do something like that. But for me, what I really like watching is when someone uh, really gives of, them, gives of themselves and, and you feel like you walk away knowing something about the performer. And so I, I, when I, I really like to, there's a, an Irish community called Owen O'Neill who has uh, translate, uh, transcripted the... Um, the Shawshank Redemption into a play. And he used to do these really heartfelt shows, these really storytelling shows, uh, which were really moving, funny and moving and real about his alcoholism. It's one he could call uh, Off My Face, which is, you know, starts with him on the grave of his mother while, a, while a, a, an RUC helicopter, you know, picks him up and, and he, he thinks they're going to take him away and, and kill him. So he jumps out of it, you know, and, and, and really honest stories that, made, that make the audience go, <gasps> and I... I just thought I'd try and do that. I thought I thought I would. Mm. It's kind of I was writing monologues and writing characters, and I thought I'm going to try telling a story. Tries telling stories, and this was like back in the late '90s, and then that has kind of has become de rigueur in de rigueur in uh, in Edinburgh comedy. Is you know mm. um, who's the most popular? Probably Rod Gilbert. 
you know, that's uh, that's a couple of his stories of uh, really intricately wound stories and highly highly entertaining and funny. But what won him the awards is because they were had a beginning, a middle, and an end, and and left you thinking, oh, I know something about the guy. Mm. So now when you see him, you think you already feel like you know you own something of him. And I I think that's where I, I'd like what I'd like to be trying to do. Sure. When, when you're writing, do, are you sitting down and writing when you come up with a show? I remember hearing a story that you wrote your award-winning Edinburgh show on the train on the way to Edinburgh. <laughs> yeah, that's, actually. No, that's a rumour. I, <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote a show in um, 1997 and I was having a really bad time. I had just arrived over in, in, um, in Britain after the fault. Well, the, my, my wife and I split up uh, in a really bad situation, which is in the show, so I won't tell you about it. And then about a month and a half later, Cork the Juice Pigs fell apart. So I, I went, I went, I lost my seven closest friends, like my basically my support group in the space of a month and a half. And I came to Britain to try and get away from it all. And uh, my my life was literally falling apart under me. Um, I th- I was suicidal, and I was feeling, I felt I, I, could, I can't even go to where how bad it was. And I didn't. I had to come and do this Edinburgh show, and I just hadn't. I just hadn't, I just hadn't, hadn't done anything about it. Mm. I just spent the whole summer really wasted and getting drunk and uh, having a bit of a nervous breakdown and uh, got on the train and thought, oh God, okay, I've got to do this in a couple of days. So I wrote down a whole bunch of ideas and a story and kind of flushed, flashed something together. And this is back in the day where you could, you could actually come up to Edinburgh with an idea, a general idea of what you're going to do. And by the time you leave, you had a great show. But you can't do that anymore because people, A, they're spending like 10 quid on a ticket and there's all that you're, you're, you're against, you're going up against people that have been touring their show all year so they come in with this really deadly show mm. and the critics have got sharpened pencils that if it's not like amazing day one, you know, it's like this big horrible thing. It used to be you could just show up and there was only uh, the Scotsman and the list reviewing anyway. So even if you, they may not even get around to reviewing every show. So you didn't even, that's not, you work on word of mouth and, and, and flyering and papering and meeting people and talking to people and, and, and uh, that's how you got your your show together. So I was l- lucky in that year. I got a really nice show together out of this horrible situation where I, I, sp- sure. I talked openly about the uh, the break the emotional breakdown I had. So so when so when you're writing when you're sat writing and you know on a train on the way here or, or somewhere else you do you do most of your writing off stage or on stage? Uh, I do. It depends which type of show it is. Last year I did a show called Rants, which was more of a stand-up comedy type show, uh, and it was just like me ranting. I decided to try and do a, a take on uh, almost a piss take of uh, ranting comedy, where I got really upset about like traffic lights on roundabouts. You know, traffic lights on roundabouts. You know, but uh, but I I wrote it in in sections, and I and I worked with the um, uh, Kerry Marks and, and mm. Steve Carlin, some different people, bouncing ideas and trying to get and I get a get a through line on how to make it work, and I just didn't end up getting the show together very well so that was very much written very much scripted piece uh bobby spade uh was is the character thing i did which was poetry i wrote the welcome to crazy town was a one hour long poem comedy song so obviously the songs were all written and uh and the poems were written but then i i kind of worked them out on stage how how i joined the whole thing and it became and but this this show is a story that i've just kind of uh yes i started doing on stage but I only did three previews of it so I've only I'm only just still finding mm. finding the story and finding the beat, the beats of the, mm. the things that I will keep the things that will remain and be be the same every day and and how do you how do you find those beats in the writing process is that are you are you working sort of instinctively from where the audience is laughing are you what's could you just talk a bit about the 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 dynamic of doing that 
Well, it's really you, you get really sensitive to an audience when you do it because this is why it's difficult to do this kind of conversation in front of you. I think you don't normally do it in front of an audience, do you? Uh, so, well, we've done we've done about twenty or so, and the rest are, oh, are, yeah. are in someone's house. Yeah, yeah. right. So it's really difficult because I want to please you guys. I really the idea that you're not in, in this isn't entertaining you in any way is really uh, is affecting me. So when I'm trying to, I want you to be, I want this to be entertaining. So it stops me from being quite as candid as you want. But at the same time, uh, when I'm doing my storytelling shows, I'll I will. Start telling a story, and I, and I will look for the important moments in the story, and I will see how they affect you. And then, if it works, I will keep it. And today, like today I found one uh, where I talk about uh, going to a, a counselor, relate counselor with my with my wife. Mm -hmm. And uh, the counselor was this like really oddly affected guy. He had matching red shoes, matching red socks, matching red trousers, matching red belt, matching red shirt, matching red glasses, and like and he was really effeminate and wanted to. And he he saw her, and I waited outside. Then he saw me, and she waited outside. And then when he came in, he said, I, th I see relationships like plants. Plants are like, you know, like what some, some relationships are like a cactus that sits out in the middle of a wasteland. And, you know, it's full of water. The cell feeds itself, but it's kind of prickly and no one really wants to disturb it. Other plants are like ivy that climb up the wall of a building. And it's so beautiful. As the plant gets bigger and longer, it's, it covers the structure, but it then gets, eats into the walls and the windowsill and it causes structural problems. Your plant is dead. <laughs> Your plant is dead. I say, take it out of the plot and save what you can. And then I drive home with my wife in our car. We've just had this horrible breakup based on some horrible things. And we start laughing for the first time, giggling, our plant, our plant is dead. Our plant, our plant is dead. Our plant is dead. And then today I discovered if I kept repeating, our plant is dead. Our plant is dead. It's dead. The plant is dead. And I discovered that today just by repeating it. And I was feeding from the off from the audience because they were finding, as you guys did, it's kind of amusing to be told that by a counselor at Relate. You paid him like $400 to be told your plant is dead. But actually, it gets me to the next part of the story because our plant was dead. And that beat, that beat will now stay in the show now. Because gotcha. the next thing I say is our plant was dead. And we, uh, the stuff that we did, we broke windows, we broke mirrors, we, we screamed at each other. Our plant was very dead. So it kind of, so that 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 only came out of doing it in front of an audience. Sure. Because uh, originally the story was just that plant is dead. Get a laugh. Move on. Okay. Okay. So that when was, you does that make sense? That, that, so when you get uh, when you get something that gets a laugh, you're able to sort of unpack it. You like that laugh's almost like a, a peg you can put in and go right. Well, that's there. Now yeah. I can take more risks around it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I worked with a, I worked with a guy called Phil Whelans, who's a, an improviser and character actor, and he's in Bill Bailey's Beer Gut 100, and he's been in comedy a long time. He's a dear friend, and he directs my shows, and we developed a formula uh, when we started doing these storytelling shows, and that was to find, um, to, to find set pieces that work. So, for instance, I know from telling that story to other people that the Relate story, uh, when I was making notes for this show, uh, I've told that story to a few people, you know, drunk at a party, whatever, and I know that, that when you get that plant, your plant is dead, it's a real story, and it gets a laugh. And almost everyone goes, oh, my God, that's amazing, sure. right? So I know that that's going to, that set piece is going to get a laugh and that so that that went in as that's a set piece in that part of the story and and we 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 pretty much look at it like a like an image so you have set pieces are like um tell us telephone poles and you try and we try to find originally try and we, we start with five of them uh a, a strong opening and a strong ending because that's what you need for a show so you need to know where the song you find one in the middle that's really strong uh, as strong as you can get and then you put a couple in between and then you string the story together so you know you're going to end up with those set pieces and all the inf all the material information that needs to set those pieces up are like the like a telephone wire and it hangs really loose and baggy when you're starting 
starting to tell the story and uh, you might not even get to all five of them. But then what you do is you, you, you remember them as you say it and you slowly clip out the bits that are, and uh, fabric of the, and, and part of the telephone line of things that are unimportant or people that are unimportant to the story, all extraneous things to you have a really taut piece of telephone wire stre spread, stretched across um, you know, what may end up being about nine set pieces. Gotcha. Okay. Sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's so fascinating. It's, it's, it's Thank you. That's great. So if you were to take all you put, you could put, I've got like three storytelling shows as well as this. So actually four storytelling shows as well as this one. Uh, uh, the Naked Racist and Nearly Gay, uh, The Hero Worship. Uh, you could actually put them on top of each other if you were to, to spread them out and you'd see, you'd see the formula. You'd see the format in how, the, how I work to get the arc of the story so gotcha. it's the most satisfying for the audience. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's a great analogy. I'd never, I'd never sort of, I mean, it seems like a, oh God, what a, what a great way to make a show. Yeah. <laughs> when I think of all the flailing around I've done when, uh, you know, when I've kind of gone, okay, that, that bit definitely works and that bit works. Are you, do you change the order of the pieces, if your set pieces, the different telegraph poles? Do you go, okay, that bit maybe, you know, yeah. in order for the story, I tell you why, why I'm asking. The, the, when I sit and write shows, I frequently find myself going, okay, in order to get to there, I've got to know what I'm talking about there, and I don't know how to get there, and I'm, I spend a lot of time flailing and worrying. Yeah. Is well, that that, well, that's that's what the idea of is. If, I, if you make it kind of um, so, this only how we work is. If you, we just made it. We put it on. We actually just drew it on a. He actually drew, we drew it on a piece of paper and went. That's actually it was just lines going. Well, that's well. This story that you know there's there's a like in in the uh, the naked racist. It's a linear story. It's because it's five hours of an event squeezed into an hour. So I have to follow it linear. So that one. But but it's in each part of the story there was a set piece of action that definitely is a, a, something that's interesting, you know that's going to make the audience continue. It gives them hope that, you, they, that they know you're going somewhere. Yeah. Uh, it, give, okay. it, it allows them to relax because they know even if this bit, this, whatever, every bit of information in the story that you heard me tell, mm -hmm. uh, well, not, not so far because I'm still taking pieces out. Sure. But by the end of this run, hopefully every bit of information that's in that story and every sentence in that story will have some bit of information and be important to the overall story. And, mm. and the audience can sense that whether or not they know it or not they, they can sense when someone's just ga gabbling like I am now and not really clear what they're doing but they know when someone's being really precise and those set pieces allow you to go that's really precise therefore you trust me that I am going to take you somewhere really satisfying and then the more satisfying you can make the final peg when it all comes together and you pull all the threads, you've got all these threads of, of the story. When you pull one of them and it all comes together to form a piece of cloth, you, the audience guarantee goes, that's uh, well done. And they applaud you yeah. for it because you've, been sat, you've done something that any good novelist or any good storyteller does is, is make it all make sense. When, when you've made, when you've finished a show, um, and I, I should say as well, there'll be some opportunity for questions if anyone would like to think of questions. I keep forgetting to say that first and then so think of some now we'll come back to you in five minutes um when you've uh, when you've made the show and it works and it's complete and it's whole and it's finished what are the what are the effects on you and your life now that you've got all that stuff out do you know what i mean is that does it have a positive effect i've heard lots of different answers to this question does it have a healing effect to have spoken about the stuff that's been on your mind I, I, it must do. I mean, I, I don't want it. I, I'm really sensitive about it being um, uh, sort of self-indulgent claptrap, you know, like because 
it's so easy to lose, you know, I mean, it's so easy to be doing it for me. And I don't, I, it's, I really, uh, what I'm trying to do is, I, I don't I hate watching a show where the person on stage, whether it's a theater piece or a comedy piece or whatever it is, where the person's preaching at you and telling you what they think you should think. That includes music and everything. I'd rather watch an artist uh, tell you, express an epiphany that they had about themselves, and then it has some uh, resonance in something, it might mean something to you, and then you hang on to it. That's why you like the favorite songs that you like, and that's why you like your favorite uh, comedians that you like, because they, you, they kind of speak to you without being like, this is what you should do. And so when I write these shows, I'm very careful not to get into a situation where I'm um, being p p editorializing it. I try to be as, as honest about them, be, be mm. brutally honest about them. So in doing that, I guess it allows, I kind of discover things about the way I felt about them. In the story this year, The Weary Land, I'm talking about something that happened 15 years ago. I really don't have the emotional, I didn't think I had the emotional baggage attached to it, but you can't help but relive the moments from inside them um, and and feel something for them. So it. If, if anything's good, if anything good has come out, I said to someone today, if anything is good has come out of this show, The Weary Land, whether it does well or gets an audience or gets good reviews or any of that, that would all be very nice. But the best thing of it is I've actually been in contact with my ex-wife about it because I had to tell her, I'm doing a show and you're in it. I hope you don't mind. In fact, I left it really late. I should have told her like months ago where she had, <laughs> she would have had the opportunity to say, I don't want you talking about me. But she, she, it's too late. I basically, I, I wrote, and she was so nice about it. She wrote back to me going, oh, I, I see all that stuff that happened to us as, as, as what happened. As, as, you know, she's in a really good place, remarried with children. I'm in a really good place. It's all, we're just, we're just young, stupid, passionate people. Tell them everything. So that's kind of uh, why I would have married her in the first place, because she's a, quite a, an honest person. So that's, that's good. That's come out of it. You know, we're now in contact. We're now keeping in touch, and she wants to know how the show goes, because obviously she's in it. And... Um, you know, she'll also read the reviews and realize I'm being really nasty about her. We've got about 10 minutes or so left. If there's any questions, uh, feel free. You can ask about anything if you ask them to me first and then I'll repeat them for the sake of the uh, recording. Well, what do you think well, of it? What do I think of, what do I think of I, I, the First of all, the um, development, uh, the devel the development of, of a sitcom is a long and difficult route and it takes the, the amount of work that goes into seeing the shit that you see would blow your mind mm. if you thought well mm. if they just give if they gave, put that same amount of development and if, if they were I can think of you know a hundred writers who could write a brilliant sitcom for you and probably have done which you will never see and whether it's a personality or whether it's a person a, a vehicle for someone however, however they end up with their sitcom it's still a, as difficult a process for them so it's basically I would say that someone who ends up in a sitcom where it's just them who has a vehicle for them cracking the jokes they already do on stage which you've seen and you know is just because they're not willing to take any risks with the person and it's probably not the performer's fault themselves it's probably all the people around them making decisions going this is what you should do this is what you should do this is what you should do and most uh, younger performers don't really have the, um, the, the power or, or the wherewithal to say I, that's not what I'm going to do and I don't think you can be choosy. I don't think there's a... It's not like we all sit and go, well, I'm going to choose to do this particular sitcom. You, you kind of do what you're given. And uh, and a lot of the... It's, you know, there's some, there's some great stuff on television. I don't own a TV, but there's some great stuff. And there's some and there's some rubbish. And it's always going to be that way. Well, I'll pass my apologies on to Lee back over there. Really <laughs> <laughs> so I, really, I, think, I think I really like that show because I think it is actually true to the type of comedian that he is and sure. so if you're you know but I don't know I, I, I like I'm a fan of Lee Mack so um, 
it's it I think it just depends on I think it's certainly true to say if you don't if you're not a fan of Lee Mack's stand up you probably won't like his sitcom because Sure. Yeah. I'm fairly Whoa. sure he yeah. he he will yeah. not do it in his sleep. No. I think there's yeah. an awful lot of work has gone into that, and I think actually what they've done is I think what they've done with Lee Mack's sitcom is that they've they've taken a really bold, interesting direction, which is to have a gag-driven sitcom as opposed to a situation-driven sitcom. Well, that, there, there is a lot. Of, it, it, you're very possibly right there. As someone like Lee Mack. But well, one thing about Lee Mack is he makes it look extraordinarily easy. That's he does. definitely He true. makes it look as if he, was, he does that in his sleep. And uh, there's a lot more stuff going on. And he has to do a lot of work to get to that, yeah. I, I would think. Not to be defensive for him, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, sure. I think that's one of the one of the. I mean, he's not funny at all at home. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he just really has. That's really hard work for him. <laughs> I think that is one of the, one of the frustrating things about comedy is that if you're doing it well, you're making it look like you're not working very yeah, hard. Yeah, sure. I mean, who, who's yeah. one of my favorites to watch is Bill Bailey. He doesn't even look like doesn't even look like it's written. It looks like he's just coming up with that stuff as on the fly. But we sure. all know, we all know, he spends hours and hours and hours at home working on the thing that stands out about him, of course, because he does a bit of music. He, we anyone because this I think is true when you're doing play when you play music most of the people in here probably don't play music to a concert level therefore when you see someone doing it even if you don't like particularly the music go well that's still amazing to watch someone perform like that but you watch someone do uh, perform comedy on a concert level even though none of you can actually do it you don't think much of it you think well I'm funny I was funny last night at a party and and, and so you it's really hard for comedians to, who are actually working on a really high level, not to people go, well, that's shit. And I, my buddy mm. Johnny stuck a banana up his ass in the Barbados, and it was way funnier than that. You can't have that idea, by the way. That's, uh, that's uh, <laughs> well, the that's Johnny twice, Banana that's my, Show. That's my sitcom. Yeah. <laughs> the banana shitters, they're called. A <laughs> plantain, yeah. Oh, Jesus. Uh, okay, any, uh, any other questions? Do you get uh, yeah, do you get stage fright? Yes, very very much. So I, uh, I'm not. I it depends how comfortable I am with the with the play. If I if I'm playing the comedy store in London, I don't really because I've I've played there enough. I feel like it's my stage and the audience has come to me. But I, I'm so audience aware uh, that I'm almost too in too oversensitive about it. I'm really worried about what people are going to think of me. That I go, I get really dry, and I can't speak. And I found myself on a, the bigger programs, on a TV galas and things like that. I very much am the type of comedian who will dry. Uh, as the last time I did, in, when I did the Edinburgh uh, thing here, I right before I went on, I I couldn't. You can't drink enough water. I'm, I was completely dry, and I was uh, terrified. And it only becomes a, a self-feeding thing. The more terrified I became, so I went on with uh, being unable to speak. Which, which you know, you, when you watch, when you watch it, you can't quite tell. But if you watch it now, you might be able to tell. I'm, I'm not comfortable at all. Is there, is there any, is there any solution for that? Could you, could you, do some, some sort of work to try and get over that? Because I, I've that's, try, I've tried. I mean, I, no, I don't think, I just don't think you can. I, I don't know where it comes from. It's just, it's about comfort level. Okay. And, and uh, it's, a, so some sort of, it's an anxiety about anxiety the approval, about, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know where it's from. It's just, it's about breathing. You know, it's just about breathing. It's about knowing what suits you, and I and and also going through. You know, people have little things that they do. Every comedian probably a different one. That they little things they do to make themselves feel comfortable. Some comedians will not come out of their dressing room until right before they're supposed to go on. Some people will hang around backstage for a, an hour beforehand. Some people will have to go show up at the venue and be on stage and have the mic and have a look around. Other people want to get out of a car and come straight in through the theater. So mm. it depends. 
I, I'm often better when I haven't had a chance to think about it. When I come from another show and I'm sweating and thinking about another show and I'm just pushed on stage, I don't have time to think about it. But if it's a, for un, when you're doing TV and stuff like that, there's a lot of sitting around and I get really wound up about it. Is that, do you think there's a chance that that, that um, anxiety or that, that need to be approved of is the origin of your, your hyperactivity on stage? That you're that you you've got this hugely manic energy a lot of the time not not so much in your in your Edinburgh shows which are more sort of reflective but your your club sets it's fear driven absolutely yeah. totally fear driven yeah when I started doing oh, this sounds really dull now but when I started, no no this is I, this is when, exactly what we want to hear when I started doing the, the after the juice pigs and I started to go back to doing open spot stuff I was terrified that I wasn't as going to be as good like I was going to get caught out for being for being getting away with it for ten years. And, uh, For ten years, you could still do. You could do ten years, and you could think, you could still worry that you'd been just getting away. Yeah, with getting it. away with it, absolutely. And so I would come on run, and I didn't have a lot of material, so I remember running on stage, just being quite, quite manic and hyper, and hyper, and climbing over the audience and doing stuff that, as actually, uh, I, to be honest, was influenced by Phil Kay because that's the way he used to perform. He used to make something happen in the room, just to make something happen in the room. You never knew what to expect, and I loved that watching, watching that. So I tried to be a purveyor of that style of comedy, but it was out of sheer nervousness of not having anything to do. So when I saw someone stand they're really deadpan and not not blink and tell jokes and have an audience laughing i i thought they were absolute genius yeah. excellent amazing answer um any any others any other questions yes over here can i just repeat repeat okay, that yeah, for the sure. sake of the recording yeah. so what we're talking about is digressions when comedians digress from their subject in between as you say the the, the telegraph poles how often i guess are you asking phil how often for him or how often for comics in general how often is that staged yeah, effectively? How, how scripted, direct. Yeah. Like when they get back on point, it makes you think, well, that was really clever. How they just sort of went off. Sure. And like, it makes you, you're impressed with the craft, but like. Sure. So we're talking here about the, the illusory, you know, the illusion yeah. of, yeah. oh, I'm doing it for the first time. Yeah. I've accidentally ended up back here. Well, well let's, yeah. I, I would say that it's completely crafted. But I don't know them personally, but I would say completely crafted, but at the same time they have an audience, uh, the audience that are going to pay to see Billy Conley or Eddie Izzard uh, or Ross Noble or any of the people that do that kind of thing are already going to be going for that reason. And therefore they feel free if it's going well to, add, to push it a little bit further. So a routine, uh, and I could, they, they, any one of them could correct me, uh, but I would say that a lot of it is written in front of the audience and extended each time they add an extension or they, or they go, get an audience going or something happens in an audience that allows them to propel it a bit further and they just remember it, remember it and they keep it they keep it and then they go that far the next time before going back on topic and I remember driving with Ross Noble when I was he was about a 16 year old uh, comic and he was driving me down to uh, um, somewhere like um, it wasn't Falmouth, but somewhere quite far away. And he, he had a long time to talk about comedy. And he already at that point had decided that he was going to uh, build towers of, of, of material and have them uh, have different towers of material and be able to swing between them fluidly. And he already had a, a, a clear image in his mind which is similar to my image, that my image is about story, storytelling shows and so it's quite linear, but his was free to, to allow himself to look free form while at the same time knowing exactly what platform he was about to go to and choosing them and be able to move so quickly between them that the audience makes, appears to the audience like it's a free form show. And um, I think if you go and see someone like that three or four nights in a row, most of the time it's going to be this, a very similar set, um, maybe not in the same order. 
but certainly um, the more you do it, it's easier to do that. Uh, someone like Phil Kay, for instance, I don't think Phil, the show he's doing this year is more about his stories, so they, I've heard them a few times and they, they, he, he's, he's you know, sort of buffed them up, but his, when he's in a free form, when he, he can stand there for like 20 minutes with a guitar in front of an audience and die for the first 18 minutes and then suddenly for the last two minutes do something absolutely wonderfully glorious because the audience knows for the first 18 minutes he was just making it up, that then the last two minutes it has to be the same and because it's glorious he gets double the uh the the um uh, applause or uh, the, the i think that's i think that's does that answer your question yeah, yeah, it's really ra it's yeah. really really rare amongst all these guys uh, you know all of the uh, people uh, all of us look want to look make it look like we're improvising or saying it off the hoof because that's the key to good comedy is the audience doesn't know where it's going some of them the purveyors of the that kind of i'm going off over here and then i come back um it, i would say it's very much crafted but there are there are a few, aren't there? There are a few. There's a Phil K. Yeah. I mean, I know Tony Law. He he has written stuff and I'm interviewing him tomorrow. If anyone yeah. would like to return here, yeah, so yeah. we'll we'll put that question to him. But I'm I'm sure that I've seen him several times, uh, like in a row, and I've gone, oh, that's new, and that's a new take on that, and that's something else. But there's He's, that bit I recognise and that bit I recognise. I saw Tony two days ago, and he was having a he'd finished his show, and he was having a writing session with uh, with Storm, who he writes with. Uh, who sees all of his shows, and um, he'll do, do he'll do the same thing. He's got uh, routines and ideas and concepts that he works, and he keeps working in them. And he's working towards an Edinburgh show, so he will work on that from the end of this Edinburgh show. When he loses all this material, he'll start working on all the next material. So mm. everything that you see him doing, it'll constantly grow and evolve. But it's still crafted. I mean, it's, it's a lot of work goes into that. A lot of work. I think it'd be fascinating as well if anyone had the sort of budget or resources to do it, but to go and see someone in one of their very first previews of a show yeah. and then go and spend a fortune to see that show in an arena near the end of the tour yeah. and see how much you recognise and how many sort of you recognise elements of it with, you know, with a lot more work done on them. Yeah. We, uh, we have got sort of not really any time left. If there's any burning questions, we can do one more or otherwise we'll wrap up Just there. Just yes or no questions at this point. Yeah. <laughs> Phil, thank you so much. You've been really, Thanks, uh, I really appreciate how uh, uh, honest you are and you're, okay. you're fiddling with your shirt. I can tell you're nervous. No, I, but, uh, <laughs> this, this, no this is something I've done since I was very young. Um, Adam Bloom pointed out to me as I have this uh, thing, I roll, I roll fabric. It seems weird, doesn't it? Um, I do, I roll fabric. And I remember when I was young, I used to be uh, really nervous, um, of a nervous disposition. I used to take my T-shirt and, and start it rolling. And then once I got it rolling, I could roll the whole thing up. And my mother used to hit me because it was ruining, stretching, ruining all my T-shirts. And it's something I've always done, but I think as I've got older, I've become make it more subtle, so you don't really notice it unless you've known me. And Adam Bloom went, "You roll your fat, you roll your shirt," and I was like, "Oh my God, I'm not doing it very well." <laughs> I, I, I tend to stand with my hand behind my back, and I and I and I do that secretly, that shirt rolling. Yeah. So I, it, it's not when I'm nervous; I just do it all the time. It makes me feel good. But same time, if you want a spliff, I'm your man. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Mr. Phil Nickel. <laughs> So that was Phil. Thank you so much uh, to, to the fabulous Phil Nickel. My favourites are always when people really expose themselves, and I, I think you have to be very brave to do that. So do follow him at Phil Nickel and check out his own website for a, a typically candid explanation of his feelings towards all of his previous shows. I, I mentioned that in, in the interview, and that's really worth a look, is to, to watch someone over 13, well, I think 15 years, go through a process of just being able to look back and, and reflect on where each show came from 
and how he feels about it now. It's fascinating stuff. Thanks, as ever, to Dan Melrose, James Lowey, Pete Jones, and all of that gang. Um, the live show in Edinburgh was produced with assistance from Anthony Butler at So Television. Thank you for listening. Do get in touch. Uh, I've been Stuart Goldsmith, and I will speak to you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.